Hello again, I should say. It's very nice to speak to you in person and not on the screen, I must say. So we've come to the end of this little letter. And I don't know if letters are special to any of you. I know some of you are quite young. And I need to tell you that 30-odd years ago, <clears throat> pre-mobile phones, pre-email, letters could mean an awful lot. In fact, to me personally, I've got some in my loft that my dear husband, who wasn't my husband when he wrote them, wrote to me. And um, one in particular I must tell you about, because I met Mark just before I went to Africa. And I was going to a tiny little remote um, place in the middle of what was then Zaire, it's the Democratic, Democratic Republic of the Congo now. But anyway, um, because it was so remote, you literally had to fly for about five hours over what looked like broccoli, I promise you, it was just jungle. And um, so we only got post every time a plane went over and sort of dropped a bag of post. Anyway, uh, my dearly beloved, as he is now, wasn't then, just a friend, uh, actually wrote a letter to me five weeks before I left so that it would be there waiting for me when I arrived. I know, I know. So letters, letters, I mean, what can I say? They are precious. Mine hasn't been copied over and over and read out in churches, you'll be glad to know. But this one certainly has. And it is an amazing letter, isn't it? We've seen, haven't we, over the last few weeks, how Paul is so brilliant at well, he's brilliant at lots of things, but he's brilliant at explaining theology to us. He starts off in chapter one, doesn't he, at focusing our hearts and our minds on Jesus and on the supremacy of Jesus, that Jesus is above all. And what's particularly wonderful about Jesus is that he reveals God to us. Jesus is the one that makes what is hidden seen. It's like the big reveal, the curtain is drawn back and we can know God because we can know Jesus. And then, of course, in, later on, um, Paul talks about what Jesus did on the cross. He talks about what that victory actually means, what it looks like for us. And then chapter 3, we read about how we who are united with Christ, we who have been, as it were, baptized into um, this new family, and into this new life, how we can live that life, how we can actually be like Jesus, how we can be kind and compassionate and loving. But now we get to the end of the letter and it gets really exciting, I have to tell you, because this is where the rubber really hits the road. This is talking about real people and it's about working out all that Paul believes, all that Paul has been talking about, working it out in practice. What does it actually look like? And I know that these are people with strange names that lived a long time ago in a very different culture, in a very different world. But I truly believe that God has things to say to us here in Winchester in 2022 uh, through these, uh, these dear saints. So I'd like to pray that we would have ears to hear. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our ears 
and soften our hearts that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Hold on, just grab some water. It's my third time, I have to say, so bear with me. Um, so, we've got the first two people mentioned, Tychicus and Onesimus, and they're like the postman, if you like. They come from Colossae, and they were visiting Paul in what we think probably was Ephesus. Paul is in prison in Ephesus, and they've probably come from this little congregation in Colossae. And they've probably come with news that things aren't going that brilliantly, that um, the church is troubled by false teaching. And so they pour their hearts out to Paul, and he then writes this letter that we now call the Colossians. But he also writes another letter called Philemon. And it's in our Bibles. It's just a page long. And I would really encourage you, when you get home, to find Philemon and read it, because it literally goes with the letter to the Colossians. They're like, um, yeah, you, Philemon could be chapter 5, if you like. It's, it's written about the same people in the same context. So Tychicus and Onesimus are going back to their church in, Colossian, in Colossae. Uh, but I think that um, the letter that they were carrying to Philemon, I think that uh, Onesimus was probably holding it with a degree of fear and trepidation. Because Onesimus was actually a slave that had run away from his master, who was called Philemon. Philemon was a church leader, a respected church leader, who had a household, a rich enough household to have slaves. And Onesimus was someone who had left that, run away, and we think probably had then become a Christian through meeting Paul. So Paul finds himself in this incredibly complicated, messy pastoral situation where he has this runaway slave who is now going back to his master, Philemon, and is asking Paul, as it were, to represent him, to sort of speak for him. So Paul writes the letter to Philemon, you can read it when you get home, and he's basically asking Philemon to have mercy, to forgive Onesimus, and welcome him back into his household, not just as a returned slave, but as a Christian brother. So we see here in this little story how all that Paul's been talking about reconciliation about the power of the cross to bring about reconciliation has to be worked out in practice. The power of the cross can look like a letter. It can look like a humble confrontation. It can look like an asking for forgiveness. Because Paul knows, and we know, don't we, that God's mission, God's work of reconciling is about bringing things that are separated together. That's what God does. He unites. So Paul knows that in Christ, in Christ's family and through Christ, Jew and Gentile are brought together, male and female, rich and poor, black and white, gay and straight, young and old, all the things, all the divisions that we see, Ukrainian, Russian, 
The power of the cross means that things that are separated, people that are separated, groups that are separated, can somehow, amazingly, be brought back together. So, we go on to read about Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, these three that also send their greetings with Paul. Now, Aristarchus, we think, might be in prison actually with Paul. We're not sure. The others might be as well. But what we do know is that they're all together. They're a team. They are co-workers doing the same ministry, uh, supporting one another. <clears throat> but it was not always so. One of them, called Mark, we read about in the, in the book of Acts. And we read about him in Acts 15. And there, Luke writes that Mark and Paul had a sharp disagreement. I know, it's a good phrase, isn't it? A sharp disagreement. And this, of course, was painful. Paul decides to go off with Silas, and Barnabas and Mark stay together, and they go their separate ways. <clears throat> you know, when we read about the early church, we read about a church that probably looks a lot like our church. It's a church that is not perfect. In fact, it's a church that often fails. It's a church that is divided. It's a church that is broken. It's a church that is often misled and misleading. I believe that Paul must have wept many tears over the behavior of some of his brothers and sisters, and I'm sure over the behavior of himself, as I'm sure a lot of us have. Because churches do cause people pain. In fact, I think sometimes the pain that we experience in church is often worse even than the pain we experience outside of church. People leaving causes us pain even when they go to another church. People having disagreements causes us pain. People having relationships that then get broken is painful. Bad behavior causes us pain. And people who give up the faith also hurts. And I really believe we need to be real about this. Um, some of us have been reading Bonhoeffer, who is a German theologian writing just before the war. And Bonhoeffer writes this wonderful thing about disillusionment, disillusionment with the church. Uh, because he actually talks about disillusionment as being a work of God's grace. He says it's a really good thing. Let me just read a bit to you. <clears throat> Innumerable times... A whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and tries to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, 
so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. It is true that many people are disillusioned with the church. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it, when we've heard about how wonderful that weekend is. And that is true. And I know, and we all can know, uh, times of fantastic fellowship and times when things are going really well. But we all also know times when they don't. And I think that we need to listen to those that are disillusioned with the church. We need to listen carefully. We need to hear what they're saying. And we need to act accordingly. So let's be real about when we get it wrong. Let's be real with one another. Let's be real about our need, all of our need, for forgiveness and help. Perhaps we could just pause for a moment now, have a moment of silence where we just bring to God either the hurts that we ourselves have experienced or the hurt that we know somebody else has experienced from church. It is true that the church can be the place where we experience the greatest pain, but it is also the place where we experience the greatest healing. And this is what we see in our passage today with Mark and Paul. What Paul writes, sort of in brackets, is the most wonderful picture of reconciliation and healing. He tells them to welcome Mark, Mark is back on the team, so to speak. He is back with Paul, working alongside Paul. And Paul is rooting now for Mark. Because God is always the God of the second chance, the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance, endless chances. God is the God who makes things better. The church is the place where relationships are restored where teams are mended, where ministries are reinstated. So these three, Mark, Aristarchus, and Justice, these three uh, Jews, the fellow co-workers with Paul, are described as being a great comfort to Paul. And I love that word comfort. Uh, it makes me think of the Holy Spirit, because he is called the comforter, isn't he? And I want us to think about who do we have in our lives who give us comfort. And those are people who don't just make us feel better, because the Holy Spirit is, does more than just make us feel better. The Holy Spirit challenges and encourages us and helps us become more the people God wants us to be. So who do you have in your life who does that for you? Who walks alongside you? Who knows you well enough to make you feel better? Yes, but encourage you, to challenge you, to make you more the person of God. Who is it who brings the Holy Spirit to you and helps you grow in the Spirit? 
perhaps you just want to turn to someone near you and just give them a name, somebody who has done that for you in your life. James and I just said each other's name. That's allowed, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely. Um, and thank God for them. You can also be that, of course, for someone. So the other three people Paul sends greetings from are Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. We know that Luke and Paul are very close. They've traveled a lot together. They have worked together, ministered alongside each other. And um, sadly, we know that Demas, um, later on in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, he mentions Demas and says Demas deserted him. Paul feels really alone at that point, And he, in fact, says, only Luke is with me. He feels quite abandoned. Um, Again, another source, uh, another um, insight into some of the pain that Paul would have felt in ministry. And I think we can learn from Paul, and particularly from Epaphras, uh, about how we cope with the failings and the difficulties and some of the pain that we have in church. Because they, they both are great prayer warriors. We read about Epaphras that he um, is wrestling in prayer for these, his uh, church folk. And both Paul and Epaphras pray for the same thing, interestingly. Paul, at the beginning of the letter of, to, to the Colossians, says that he's working strenuously to present everyone mature in Christ. And Epaphras, we hear, is wrestling in prayer and his desire is that we, as Jesus' followers, would be confident and fully assured that we would stand firm, that we would know the will of God. So both Paul and Epaphras pray for their, the people in their care that they would grow into maturity, that they would have that fullness of life that life that's worth living, that they would be flourishing human beings. <clears throat> and I want us to talk a little bit about that word maturity, because I think it is so important. And I think that they are not just talking about Christian maturity. They're talking about being mature humans, about living as the people God means us to live. And so I'm going to just talk about two marks of maturity, what I think of as two marks of maturity. What does it mean to be mature? Well, the first one, I think, is being mature is about recognizing our own limitations. It's about understanding that we need other people. I know that might sound strange because we might have this idea that as we grow more mature, we grow more independent. We might think that, you know, obviously as a baby, we're very dependent, and then we grow in maturity to become independent or perhaps interdependent. But I would suggest, and interestingly, there was um, a Radio 4 program uh, 
on uh, a few weeks ago. It was actually on um, the concept of desire, funnily enough, but a psychologist was speaking, and this psychologist was saying exactly what I'm saying, that maturity is about growing in dependence, because he said that actually what humans need more than anything is they need one another. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that we hear wisdom from all sorts of places, but all wisdom comes from God. You can say you read it here first in the Bible. Because I believe that God wants us to recognize our need for the other, and of course, our need for him. So as we grow in maturity, we realize how much we need others. We need to accept that we are limited, that we cannot do it all that we need others' help, others' care, others' support. If this letter is to teach us anything, it's to teach us that we cannot do this alone. The other mark of maturity, I believe, is thankfulness. We've uh, talked a bit about this through the series, haven't we? And we've called the whole series, Thanks Living. And again, it's interesting, isn't it, in the world, out, in the world around us, um, there's been a lot written about gratitude and how significant an attitude of gratitude is. You know, you can go into Waterstones and you can buy journals, I think, that help you write down what it is you're grateful for. People have begun to realize how important it is to be grateful. Of course, God knows that, and he knows that actually when we have that attitude of gratefulness, of gratitude, we are standing firm. He desires for us to have hearts that are full of praise. And I think praise and worship is incredibly important. It is incredibly powerful. But I don't just mean to be singing and praising uh, in some worship. I mean a daily attitude of praise. I mean, yeah, the doctor, I, know, I knew a doctor once who every morning he woke up and he thanked God for his health and his strength. It's the sort of attitude that sees beauty and thanks God for it. It's the ability to see God's help and God's love in another person or the ability to thank God even in the darkest of times. And this, of course, is the maturity we see in Paul. At the end of his letter, he takes the pen and he signs it off. And he says just two things that I think are hugely significant. He says, remember my chains. He wants them to count the cost. It is not easy living the Christian life. It's not easy going against the tide. He wants them to know not to be ashamed of what he is suffering, but to remember him, to connect with him, to connect with his pain. A great theologian called John Stott, in this last century I should say now, used to talk about the fact that as Christians we have two hands, one for reading the Bible, and one for holding the Bible, and one for holding the newspaper. We need to be people who read both the Bible and the newspaper. 
We need to learn what it means to connect the two and never to ignore the brokenness and the pain that is around us. Remember my chains. But then he signs his letter with the words of God's grace. God's grace be with you. Because God's grace, of course, is what keeps us standing firm. God's grace is what we all need. God's grace is the thing that helps us be who he's called us to be. It's by his grace alone that we can have those hearts of gratitude. God's grace means that when we can't, he can and he will. By God's grace, the church, we, us human beings, can be a beacon of hope. By God's grace, we can demonstrate reconciliation. We can reflect who God is 